All right. Hey, so last week I started my sermon by stating how much I absolutely positively love the sport of wrestling. Now, I'm not talking about that stupid WWE, <laughs> all right, that fake stuff, all right? I see some of you kind of squirming in your seats. It's not real, all right? I love the real thing, real wrestling. I love everything about it. But here is something I did not tell you about me as a wrestler growing up. I mean, besides the fact that my dad, uh, there was a part of our church basement, it was a bigger church, uh, that didn't have anything, so we, we bought wrestling mats and put them in the basement and made our own wrestling room, and my dad was a coach, and it, just, it was all over our family. But one of my crowning achievements is that I was named by the Coaches Association of Michigan the dirtiest wrestler in the state. Now, what that meant was the meanest or the, the, the most aggressive wrestler. But I, I was those things, but I also took my title very literal. All right? It was one of my highest and favorite achievements to date. I loved being known as the dirtiest wrestler, the wrestler who was aggressive. And, but one of the things that um, I was also known for, where I took this title very literally, was my knee pad. I would wear these knee pads, and I didn't wash them once in, like, five years, right? And my mom tried. I would not let her. I wouldn't let her touch these knee pads. I wore them every day to run in, to practice in, to tournaments all over. Now, this sounds innocent enough, right? Well, here's the thing about those knee pads. Right? In all four years of high school and even before, I never once even sprayed them down with Febreze. Right? You, you can ask her. I wouldn't let her touch them. I wouldn't even let her look at them. Right? So it's an understatement, to say the least, that these things absolutely stink. Right? And they were awful. They smelled, like, well, they, they smelled like someone had worn these every day and sweated in them <laughs> and never washed them. Again, I, I took my title very literally. And, and here's the thing that I would do with these knee pads. I would put them on, and I would warm up for a, a tournament or for a match, and I would, I would run sprints, I would practice, I would get all sweaty, and then I would go out to the mat. And right before I shook my opponent's hand, I would reach down in there, and I would get it all over my hands, right? And then I, I would shake his hand, and then the ref would blow the whistle, and the match would start. And the first thing I did, right, I would shake with my right hand. So I would take my left hand, and I would just swipe across his face, right across his nose. First thing I did in every match. Now, when I tell this story, I usually use this as an illustration when I'm talking with, like, the middle school boys, Adriano, Barrett, those guys, right? And they, they love this story, right? <laughs> Now, some of you, you're thinking, this is, this is disgusting. This is absolutely horrible. Some of you might be thinking, hey, that's pretty cool. I don't know the, the, the status of your heart right now. <laughs> but do you know why I did this? Because it would, it would make my opponent furious. It would just make them mad because they could get this, this smell across their face, and they would get angry, and they would start breathing heavier, and then they would just make it worse because they're breathing it in, and it was disgusting. And then almost immediately, you could see as their anger kind of rose up, kind of bubbled up inside of them, they, 
they would huff and they would puff and they would make a mistake. And I would capitalize on that mistake because they were distracted. They were concerned by a smell that if, in hindsight, they smelled just as bad, <laughs> all right? Right, so here's, here's the thing about anger, right? If, if, if you can make someone angry, right? If you can make someone angry, you can make them make a mistake, right? Another thing that I would do, and my dad taught me this at a very young age, so this lets you in a little bit on our family. He, he, would, he would have me practice headbutting in wrestling. So when you go in and you would, you would tie up with someone and to grapple with them, you, you, he taught me how to headbutt. And he, he and I would headbutt before I would go to bed. Like some of you guys tuck your kids in and you give them a little kiss on the cheek. He would, like, <laughs> he would headbutt me so my forehead would be hard. Right? And so we did this for years and years. And so that was another thing I was known for. I would come in and I would try to headbutt someone. And so I would distract them. I would make them mad. I would make their eyes water. Right? Again, right? Get them angry. Now, sure, right? When, when someone gets angry at you, their rage can, can make them a little bit stronger. Uh, it can make them a little bit more intense or aggressive. But it can also make their brain forget what they were supposed to be doing. And that is what I wanted. So, so I would take that anger that they had, and I would use it to my advantage. Now, you guys probably all have examples of this, right? You, you may not have stinky knee pads or headbutt people, <laughs> right? But you, you do the same thing, right? In their anger, my opponent would make a mistake, and I was there to capitalize on it, just like the dirty wrestler <laughs> that I was. Now, Norm Evans, an all-pro tackle for the Miami Dolphins, for several years, once said this. He said, it's really dangerous for a pro football player to get angry. He said, in fact, that's when linemen sustain their most serious injuries. He would go on to explain, anger is so harmful in football that it can, it can get in an opposing lineman or an end. If, he said, if I can get an opposing lineman or a defensive end angry at me, he will concentrate on beating me and forget to attack the quarterback. And that's my job, to protect the quarterback. Right? So he used the anger of his opponent against them. Now, Mike Fuller, a safety and a punt return specialist for the San Diego Chargers, he agreed when he said this in an interview. He said, the wide receivers are continually trying to make us angry. Each time they, they come into our area because they know if they can upset us emotionally, they can fool us on the next play. Right? He tries to get his opponent angry so he can get in their head. Now listen, we know at Foundry Church, we know that anger is a powerful tool. Right? I knew it. These professional football players knew it. And our ultimate enemy, Satan, knows it too. Right? He knows if he can just make us angry in a negative way, to react in that anger, he can wreck all kinds of havoc. Right? I've heard it said like this. Right? When you're angry, the devil enters your soul. Right? The devil enters your soul, and, and when you're over it, he leaves you with all of the regret. Right now, if Satan, who's roaming around like a lion, it says, seeking to devour, to destroy, to, 
to get us off our, our path of forging a lifelong reliance on God. It says this in First, uh, uh, First Peter chapter five. Right? If Satan can get us angry, he can get us to make a mistake. And here's the thing, church. If we look around, if we just zoom on out, if we look around, it seems that Satan is getting really good at making us an angry people. Right? right? Think of all the times that you've gotten angry just in the past couple of days. Heck, right? Some of you were probably in a fight on your way to church uh, today. Right? We've, oh, I've been there. Christina's been there. It's always her fault. Right? Yeah. All right. Do you know how many times that I've angrily yelled at Christina on a Sunday morning and then come through these doors to preach the gospel? Right? Thank God for his grace. Right? Right? Anger is all around us. In October of last year, the New York Times released an article entitled, The Rising Tide of Global Sadness is Tied to Anger. Right? In this article, it said that researchers analyzed 23 million headlines published between 2000 and 2019 all throughout the United States. The headlines of these papers grew significantly more negative with a greater proportion of headlines denoting anger, fear from anger, disgust, and anger, for anger, the feelings of anger because of that, and sadness. And then the article ended with this. They said this, the emotional health of the world is shattering. I think we can all agree. Right? I mean, it doesn't take a very deep look to figure that out. Right? It's kind of bleak, right? But I think if we're honest, I think if we're honest, Founder Church, we can feel it. We can feel the anger. Right? It sometimes feels like the world is just looking for someone to be mad about. And if we're honest, we, we have a lot to be angry about. We have a, a lot to be angry about. Anger at our neighbor for voting for or not voting for this guy or that guy. Anger at our parents for not raising us right. Anger at our kids for not listening ever. Right? Anger at our boss for passing us over for that raise again or giving us someone else's work to do again or for being angry at us. Anger at our spouse for saying not tonight. Anger at our friends for not having our back. And we could just go on and on and on with this list of things that kind of make us angry. And we just, you're processing. You're, you're thinking, right? These little things that make us angry, but, but we're no different from those pro athletes or those guys that I wrestled in high school. When we're angry, we make mistakes. I know I do, right? When we say things, we do things, or we act in ways that, that are, they certainly aren't going to make things better. They're not going to improve the situation. You know what I'm talking about. So let's just be real, right? Let's welcome some authenticity here. I'm talking about the time that you screamed at the guy in traffic as you were passing, only to find yourself sitting next to him at the next light. Or even worse, if you're like me, you get angry at that person, and then they're behind you at the next light, and you have that foundry bumper sticker. And your wife said, you're a pastor, you know that, right? <laughs> or that time that you yelled and you scared that kid, or that time that you saw something, and you just threw it and you broke it. 
Or that time that you stormed out of that meeting over a little thing in, in retrospect, right? Or that time that you were snarky at the employee at the grocery store or at Walmart. And in those moments where everything is just kind of bubbling up, we make these horrible decisions and we miss the mark. We sin. And it can just be a little thing, right? And we know better. We try not to do these things. And those are just the regular, everyday annoyances that we all deal with, right? What about the time where a very particular kind of anger bubbles up inside of us at a little bit deeper of a level, and I find that this particular kind of anger is harder to fight than all the other kinds of anger. It's because it's like this. It's this type of anger. It's the hardest to fight the anger that I feel that I have the right to feel. And it might just it might have been just a little thing, but this is a big thing, and I should be angry about it because, because it's righteous in my mind. Right? That kind of anger where I feel that I have the right to be angry, right? that kind of anger is different than that irritation or that short-term mad, like, burning flare of firework type anger. Right? We usually know those, those fits, those little things are wrong because they usually manifest wrong things in our life. So, so anger that we want to justify, this other kind of anger, uh, typically results when we feel disillusioned. When we start to, to feel disillusioned in our thought life or, or dis, disappointed in, in our thought life or discouraged in our thought life or, or just downright feelings of hurt that creep in. It, it might be a relational conflict that keeps happening over and over despite countless attempts uh, that you're making to make a resolve at that issue. Or maybe it's that one thing that we know we shouldn't do, a, a personal weakness that keeps that we keep doing despite the countless attempts to change, and so we're angry. Or it might be that we feel trapped in, in a difficult, painful, or apparently dead-end situation. So we're angry. Or do you have a relationship that ended in betrayal, and it has left you suffering, but your betrayer is prospering? Anger a different kind of anger, right? Who, who's, who's been there, right? We're, we've all been there, right? We're, we're seeking God's guidance on an important decision, and he just seems silent. So we're angry. God speaks to you. Or maybe you've been working really hard, and in spite of all your labors and your prayers and your reviving and your regenerating move of the Holy Spirit in your family, you're praying for these things your, your church community, you're, you're praying for it, and it just doesn't come, that move of God, that, that blessing you're praying for, that, that work that you're praying for. And it feels like in those situations, God would want us to be angry. Heck, he's probably angry too, maybe, what we're thinking. We feel like it is our right to be angry over these things. Because from where we are sitting, these situations, they're unjust. And we're just victims in these situations. We didn't do anything wrong. And so this is what we ask. We say, what do we do with our anger when we feel like we have a right to be angry? What do we do with it? Right? We sure don't want to be like those people who make mistakes when they get angry. But come on, right? We deserve to be angry and do something about it, right? When it's those other moments, 
Well, that's the onion that I want to peel today. That I, I want the layers that I want to look at today. Right? What we do when we, when everything in us says, "I deserve to have this anger inside me," and I deserve to do whatever I want to get that justice and get even and, and get right and fill in the blank. When it seems like we have every right in the world to be angry, how should we respond as people who are forging a lifelong reliance on God? Well, let's just take one last look here in this series of one person in the hall flaw to peel this onion. Right. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, where we're going to take a look at the story of a man who seemed to have everything together and every right to be angry. Now, usually I give some context before I dive into a text, but today, well, all the context needed is found in Hebrews chapter 11. So look at Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 29. Now, remember, this, this hall of fame in Scripture uh, is what usually it's called, the hall of faith, right? These guys that had great faith, these men, these women, these characters in God's overarching story. We're calling it the hall of flaw because there's no one no one that has walked this earth today, yesterday, in the past, right, will, in the future, who has it all together except for Jesus, right? And so we look at these characters, and, and we think, man, I really want to be like this guy. Now, that's good, but we want to be like the God that they forged their life on, all right? So use their stories to catapult. And that's what we're finishing up today. So look at verses 23 through 29. Simply says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The king had said all the baby boys were to be killed, so they hid him. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. All right, we know the story. Moses was hidden. Pharaoh's daughter found him amongst the water, the reeds in the water in a basket, right? raised him as, his, uh, as her own. Right? So he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, to live in sin with Pharaoh's household. Right? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Right? So by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, right, the Pharaoh, for he endured as seeing him who was, is invisible. Right? By faith, he kept the Passover, he sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Right? Then verse 29 says this, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. All right, keep your finger there. All right? Now, so this is the story of Moses, our main man here, right? From Pharaoh's palace to the desert with God's people, right? For most of us, we read this and we think, man, Moses, he's the standard. He's a man amongst men, right? He's the dude. He's the guy, right? This is the standard, Right? If we want to be like anybody in the Old Testament, Moses is that guy. Right? Look, look at all the things he did and the people he saved. Isn't, this is even a full list of, the, of his accomplishments. Right? And as we've learned, the book of Hebrews was written to a Jewish audience, to the Jewish people. 
And so they probably have the same thought. Moses is the standard. Moses is the guy to live your life like. But we also know that this is the hall of faith and that this list of people is full of people with flaws. Right? And that's okay. Because we have flaws. Right? Moses had one little problem. He had a bit of an anger issue. Right? He certainly did a lot of amazing things, and, and of course he should be included in this listing of great believers, uh, but he had one flaw, and it's even more evident, or most evident, when we read in Numbers chapter 20, if you want to turn to the book of Numbers. Now, the book of Numbers is in the Old Testament, right towards the beginning. Numbers chapter 20, use the table of contents if you need to, but in verses 2 through 9, It simply says this. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, who was like the XO of the operation. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord? Wouldn't that have been better is what they're saying? Right? Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord, right, his people, into the wilderness so that we may die here, both we and our cattle? Being dramatic. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Right? They were slaves in Egypt, remember. Right? So why have you brought us out of Egypt to this evil place? It is, it is no, there is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates and there is no water to drink. Verse 6 says, Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron and your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water, so you shall bring water out of the rock for them to, and give the drink to the congregation and to their cattle. Verse 9 says, And Moses took the staff from before the Lord and he command, as he had commanded him. <laughs> so here we have the Israelites, the same people who have gone through all of these things that we listed with Moses, right? Slavery, Red Sea, the the wilderness, they're doing these different things. These people were rescued from slavery, and the people that just saw the waters of the Red Sea split, and their their captors and the people coming after them were were slain so that they can make it to safety, right? Those are the same people who find themselves without water, and they think, well, our life is over, all right? Our life is over. We should go back to slavery in Egypt. Moses, you scoundrel, this is all your fault. Right? That's what they're saying. Right? And I'm thinking, what jerks, right? <laughs> These guys are jerks. And they have literally been rescued from slavery and death, but they get a little thirsty, and that's just a little too much for them. Come on. Right? It's like, man up. Right? So Moses and his brother Aaron, they, they hear this, and they go before God And they say to God, these people are horrible. You better do something about this. Maybe smite them. I don't know. Right? They don't say that. I would have said that. 
But instead, Moses and Aaron, they go, and what do they do? They worship. They worship. They, they bow down in front of God because they forged their entire life on God. Right? They, 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 they just fall down. They, they, they fall face down before God, and they ask him to come through one more time. And God says, yeah, I know people be peopling, but I'm going to give them some grace and give them water. Right? God is a heck of a lot nicer than me. So let's read on. Look at, look at uh, verse 10 here of, of chapter 20. It says, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly, like all these people together, before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, I want to stop right there because now we've all been Moses in this situation, haven't we? Right? Right, we've all been in a situation where we have poured our blood, we've poured it out, we've, we've poured on our sweat, we've poured our tears into something, we have prayed over, we have worked on, we have watched as God came through, and then there's just uh, this one little voice kind of floating around our life, and it sort of sounds like a mosquito. This this little voice, and you're thinking as you hear this mosquito buzzing around, you're thinking, hey, don't ruin this. Don't ruin this. But they always do. They always ruin it. We've all been there with a bunch of whiners and complainers and people who are ungrateful. And with everything in us, we want to stand in front of them and we want to shout, listen here, you ungrateful morons. Right? Well, we, we've all wanted to respond in anger in these situations because we think that they deserve it. And that we deserve to be the ones who tell them that they deserve it. We have the right to be angry. We have a right to yell at people who are rebels, it says, against God and what he is doing. Because they're rebels. I mean, we're Moses. Right? We are the one who got it right so many times before. Right? We are the good guy in this story. It's how we're going to read it. Of course that's how we're going to read it. We deserve to tell the people uh, who, who stink that they stink. Right? And you're terrible because you're terrible. Right? It's our right to tell them that. And well, let's just keep reading and see how this unfolds. Right? Verse 11 says, And Moses lifted up his hand. He struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Because someone else is going to lead my people into the promised land. <laughs> now wait a second here. This is zoom back out because Moses... This man of God, this leader, he had, this is just Andrew's two cents. Moses had every right to be angry. He had every right to be angry. These people were ungrateful jerks. They were idiots, right? They were just plain stupid, right? He had every right to be angry. Those Israelites were ungrateful whiners and did not see what God had already done for them and that the God that they were serving, the God who called them out of Egypt was a God who was going to take care of them and had a purpose and a plan for them. It seems it's easy to assume that, that when it comes to such hardened, ungrateful sinners, the heart of God's holiness is righteous indignation. 
right? And Moses, Moses was, was right. They were rebels who didn't deserve so much as a sip of water. But Moses got in trouble in this situation. Well, take a look at what happened. Moses, he fell, they said, the, the tent where the presence of God was. And Moses, he saw the glory of God. He heard the word of God. He experienced the flash and the bang of the divine, of the great I am, as he was laying there. Moses came seeking an answer, and God, the God of the universe, God the creator, the great I am, gave one, and a very clear one at that. He said, take the staff. And your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it shall yield its water. So you shall bring water for them out of the rock and have the congregation and their livestock drink. Now there's no ambiguity in how God wants Moses to respond to these whiners. God gave him a very clear job description and who he, he should be talking to, right? What he should be doing. And that was the rock. That speak to the rock, right? But Moses spoke to the people. Moses said, you know, you rebels, let me get my two cents in here. Right? That's what he did. Let me just have my two cents here, right? Let me, my soapbox just for two minutes, and then we'll get to the God stuff. God gave Moses a word, and Moses chose not to preach that word. He chose to demean he chose to belittle, and then he took it a step further and said, shall we, oh Moses, shall we bring water for you onto this rock? Now, I, I can picture God looking down and hearing Moses say, should we? Should we? Oh, Moses. <laughs> should we bring water onto this rock? And God is looking around like, who's he talking about? <laughs> Right, last time I checked, I was the only one who could bring water out of a rock. Not you, Moses. In his anger, Moses took the vengeance of the Lord into his own hands. Moses' complaint wasn't that God was going to give water to the thirsty people. It was that, that something had to be done about their horrible attitudes. That was Moses' complaint. It, it seemed like, like what God had in mind would let them off scot-free when they clearly needed to sober up. So Moses said, I got this, and he acted in anger. He reacted. You see, as it says in Luke, a tree is known by what? Fruit. <laughs> the anger of Moses, well, it gave us some rotten fruit. Sure, God provided water, but Moses provided a situation where the people of God felt belittled and small and worthless. Right, when God wanted, uh, wanted to provide his people with the fruit of grace and some living water, Moses in his anger stepped in and almost ruined it for everyone. And this is where we learn real quickly our very first lesson about what to do if we feel like we have the right to be angry. The first thing we must do is this. We have to discern if our anger is right for us, for Andrew, or is it righteous? Right? Is it God's righteousness? Right? It may feel good to yell at that guy who was mean, but is it righteous? 
right? It, 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 does your anger bear good fruit? Or does it just shut down a relationship or a conversation? Does it shut down a pathway for the truth of God's word to take root? Right? Does your anger leave you with, with a gray, burned over barrenness of exasperated frustration? But at least you said it. At least you typed it. But you're still exasperated. Or does this anger that you think you have every right to feel leave a sour feeling in the pit of your gut? Anger that just feels right for us leads us to act in selfishness, swollen, bloated, withdrawn, irritability, rudeness, and bitterness take root. Sinful anger is characterized by the self-oriented grief, a self-pity party that we make in our lives. Anger that is right for us will leave us thinking about one person, and that's us and our rights. It makes us look inward at everything we think we deserve, every moment we think we missed, everything we think we sacrificed. Anger <coughs> that is right for us wants to take away and destroy. And the only thing it wants to give people is pain and frustration. And isn't that the definition of who Satan is, what he does? But righteous anger. It's different. Righteous anger is anger we feel with God, not at God. Right? This kind of anger moves us toward acts of faith and love and true justice. It opens the door. It removes rocks out of the field so that his word can be planted. Right? Righteous anger feels things like, like the grief of our neighbor and the hurts of our brothers. Righteous anger it is actually an expression of love, a deep displeasure over the way evil defames God and destroys people. Righteous anger is not arrogant or rude or stubborn or resentful. It seeks to restore, to build up, to spur to forge ahead and not destroy. Now, zoom out. You can, if you played sports at all growing up, you can think of that one coach who was just angry, but you know they loved you. Right? Right? That's what we're talking about. Right? It's the same thing. Right? It's, it's that coach. Right? That coach that we had growing up who you thought for the life of you hated you. Right? But then they, they retire and they give you a note card with like really nice things. And you're like, huh. Right? Righteous anger. They loved you. They were building you up. They were making you a better person. Right? Righteous anger, look, bears redemptive fruit. And that's what that coach wanted in you. It's the same thing. Right? Righteous anger says to the Israelites, I will not yell at you. I will not give you water because I, I think you might just be hungry and not horrible people. Righteous anger looks at the heart of a person in, instead of their actions and seeks to redeem them and make them right with God. It spurs them to forge ahead in a lifelong reliance on God. So what do we do when we realize that we may just be acting in a certain way because this anger feels right for us and is not righteous? I think we look at the end of Moses' story, right? What did God do? Humbled Moses. I know you're not going to hear this a lot in this world. Right? He said to Moses, oh, you think you can yell at my people and bring water out of a rock? Well, let me bring you back down to earth for a hot second. You only get to do what I say you get to do, and I want you to do a lot. I've called you to do a lot. I've called you to change this world, Moses, 
but you do it by my power, for my glory, not your own. And one of the things you, you no longer get to do is you get to enter the promised land. You don't get to do that. That's like, that's like taking your team all the way to the Super Bowl and then not being allowed to go play in the Super Bowl. Right? So, so what do we do with anger that we think we have the right to feel, but we don't really? There's only one way to put sinful anger to death, and that's self-humbling. Being humble. And I know that's hard, right? Sinful anger is fueled by pride. And so we have to cut that fuel supply off. And now humility has sort of gotten a bad rap in our culture. I know a lot of people don't want to talk about humility, but, but know this. Humility, listen, lean in and get this. Humility is not weakness. All right? Humility is not just second place. Humility is not thinking of yourself as nothing. It is it's not feeling bad about ourselves. That's not humility. It's not the absence of bragging, because if you've done it, go ahead and brag, right? Humility is thinking about yourself according to the words of God. It's understanding that your identity is rooted in who God says you are and not in who you think you are. Humility is thinking of yourself according to the words of God. Humility is looking at myself the way that God looks at me as a son, as a as a. Uh, someone he's called to be a husband, as a, a brother in Christ, as a leader in a local outpost of his kingdom. Humility shaped by the gospel. The story of Jesus shows us just how bad we are, and at the same time, just how great God's salvation is. And that's a good thing. Humility is a good thing. You know that, that, that God is over you and created you, and at any moment could take you from this place. That's humility. Right? Other cultures, they get this with the, you know, they have the skull, like the Romans and the Greeks. Momente more, right? Remember that at any moment, you're worthless, you're dead. That's humility. But God, he loves us, right? That's true humility. His power, his ability, he's in control. And when we're willing to humble ourselves to that level, well, that humility will show you. And watch out because I'm about to step on some toes here. That humility does not feel right uh, to, to better treatment. Let me zoom out, all right? That humility, when we humble ourselves and we think we have this made right and this, and this anger, doesn't make us think that we can be treated better than even Jesus was be treated, right? right? Just, just think about this. I know this is a deep concept, right? In 1 Peter, it says this, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but handed his cause, his purpose, over to him who judges righteously. Right? Jesus was treated more unfairly than we will ever be treated. And he did not make a mistake in his anger. You see what I'm saying? I I'm sure he was angry. He was going to the cross for sins he didn't commit. Right? But he didn't react to that because he knew he needed to respond to God's purpose and what God the Father has said about him. That you're going to be the Messiah. The one that comes into this world to redeem it and not to condemn it. Right? So he, he didn't react to that anger. He responded in humility because he had a purpose and a task and he knew that it wasn't about him. 
He did not return evil for evil. He did not think he had the right to be angry. He knew the righteous anger seeks to redeem, and so he went to the cross uttering no threat. And we should do the same. Now, real quick, how do we do that? First, we, we must pray. Right? We, we must pray. And it doesn't have to be a super holy prayer. Just be like, God, I'm about to punch a hole in this wall. Calm me down. Let your air fill my lungs. I got to breathe right now. Right? We just got to be honest in our prayers. I mean, just take a look at 80% of the book of Psalms. It's just David yelling at God that he better show up. God better show up or he's going to go crazy on his enemies. Right? Just being honest. Being real. Communicating with God. Saying, I need you. You're the great I am. I'm not. I need you. And then the second thing we must do is we must talk about it. (laughs) And I know this is going to be a hard one for us guys, but we got to talk about it. All right, pride hates confessing sin to other people. If we feel resistance to doing it, it's an indicator that pride is likely at the root. Talking to to someone about about it wages a war on our sinful pride, our sinful anger. And objective input from other people it puts it into perspective and honestly addresses the question, right, why do I have the right to be angry? It helps us understand that, right? I, I, remember, I remember with my dad, we were at Walmart um, picking up something. I think it was actually here for the church. It was like one of these TVs or something. And we were picking up. It was a big thing. And the lady, the lady had wanted to see my, my receipt at the door. And I was just like, I was... I was snooty, right? I was like, I already paid for it. Like, I own this. Right? I watched one of those Instagram videos. You know what I mean? Right? This is mine. You don't have the right, right? This isn't Costco, all right? Right? And I was snooty. And I got in the car, and my dad's just like, dude, what are you, you idiot? Right? So I went back, right? I went back. I had a, it was hard. And it sucked, right? Now I smile at that lady over and over, like repeatedly, years later, like, you know, because I don't want her to think I'm a jerk, right? And that was years ago, years ago. The same thing. we got to have people in our life that call us on that stuff. And to, to help us to, to say, hey, you be angry. Right? And then the final thing we must do, and of course the hardest, we must forgive. For some of us, hearing the word forgiveness can make us look away and say, I'm out. That's where I draw the line. Andrew, you don't know. I can't forgive. Right? Past wounds, insecurity, all this stuff that springs to mind, making forgiveness feel impossible or at least unnatural. Right? But look at what, what it says in Colossians chapter 3. It says this, So as, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so must you do also. This one command from God, and I think God knew what he was doing. You see, just like God does with us each day, forgiveness is not saying that the sin doesn't matter. Right? It's not approving what the other person did or has done. It's not minimizing the offense or denying that we've been wronged. Right? And forgiveness doesn't, doesn't always mean reconciliation or restoration. 
But forgiveness is acknowledging that the other person has sinned against us and may never be able to make it right, but I forgive them and I am free. I don't have to be held captive to that situation. Right? Forgiveness is costly. And a lot of times that's where our anger kind of fuels from. God knows this, right? This is why he sent his son to pay the price, but it was also worth it. Unlike sinful anger, forgiveness always bears life-changing, life-giving, redemptive fruit. And so real quick, as the band comes up, I want to end today by showing a clip from a courtroom that I think illustrates what it looks like when someone who, who seems to have every right to be angry humbles themselves, prays, talks to someone, and then forgives. This clip was from three years ago. is a highly publicized court case where an off-duty police officer entered into an apartment that she thought was her apartment. She thought she was walking into her home only to find that there was someone else in this home and that it wasn't her home. And so she shot the intruder, which was actually just the person in their home, and uh, she killed that man, this innocent man. And this clip is, is right, right before the sentencing of this woman when the victim impact statements are given. And this is a statement from the, from the, the killed man's brother. Right, watch this. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yes. Righteous anger bears redemptive fruit. And that guy had every right to be like, at another level, angry. Righteous anger bears redemptive fruit. The, the expression of this man's anger brought about prayer 
forgiveness and pointed this woman to Jesus. That is the goal. Never to seek our own gain, but to seek the growth of the kingdom of God because we're forged men and women who forge a lifelong reliance on God and we guide others to do the same. In the growth of a personal relationship with Jesus for all of us and for everyone that we come in contact with is the goal. Righteous anger bears redemptive fruit. Let's stand and continue to worship this morning.